Welcome everyone to Science Society and of course a special welcome to you Dimitris. It's uh, such an honor to have you here and that you took time out of your busy schedule to come here. It's, it's really um, an honor and pleasure. I'm really looking forward to our discussion. And um, yeah, as I said before, we start, uh, since you have like a summary slide about your kind of CV, um, we usually ask the question to our guest speakers, how, if you look back at your life, like how do you think, like what triggered your interest to go into research? And uh, was it like a childhood dream experience, some museum trip, a book, or was it something later on that just, you know, that you followed this path of research? Thank you. Yeah, no, thanks Katarina for the kind invitation and uh, good uh, afternoon or morning or evening, everyone, depending on where you are. Thanks for popping by. Um, I think I was always uh, somehow, I had an inclination towards um, abstract uh, thinking a little bit and how our abstract thoughts made in our brain. Uh, so this was the main thing which led me to do two things in a sense later in life. Uh, study mathematics first, which is what I did for my PhD. And there is a slide, if you go to the second slide, uh, of my presentation. I, on the bottom right corner, you see the Department of Applied Mathematics and Theoretical Physics uh, at, in Cambridge, here in England. It's a funny uh, shaped building. It looks like a stadium kind of thing, which and has a grass uh, rooftop, the green part that you might see there. Anyway, I studied math there uh, because exactly, I, precisely, I was interested in, you know, how do we form abstract notions and abstract spaces and think a little bit, you know, far, far from for reality. Uh, but then, because that was really the question, it wasn't really, I wasn't, let's say, uh, feeling fully satisfied, although I love math a lot, fully satisfied with just playing around in abstract, theoretical, philosophical, let's say, spaces away from reality. I really wanted to go to neuroscience and really pin down uh, basically the uh, the biology and the um, the principles from information processing that lead to things like uh, like I said like abstraction like rules like what is context uh, like how do we form uh, maps and hierarchies in our brain so that was really the motivation and it still is till this day. Yeah, thank you so much. It's uh, it's really interesting, I think, to learn first kind of what the uh, motivation of different scientists is here um, and um, yeah, what triggered kind of this interest because in science, most of the time things don't work and then sometimes they do. <laughs> you need a lot of motivation and persistence, I think. So that's why it's so interesting and also important to learn and um you you worked you know at the university of cambridge with um with um Tunas's, uh, focus and then um with peter Grindat. did you um in the university college london and and with more 
people um that how, how did that help you or how you know because i i think like a lot of times these collaborations kind of mold people like was it you know how how did different people kind of influence your work or did you influence them was that kind of part of an important part of your path to work with these different people yeah i i was lucky in the sense that i had the opportunity to work together with very good scientists top in their you know in their field like like you said people like uh, focus in, in cambridge which is one of the most of the top sided mathematicians uh and then with carl friston who is again i think is a most cited neuroscientist alive and, and then miller uh, at mit later and pete like you said pete greenrod from oxford anyway it's one of them gave me you know different I, I i got different lessons and different examples and different things that i try to assimilate and you know combine in my way and still use so for example from my math career or and education i repeat and and and, and focus etc analysis uh, i got the uh, the persistence let's say and the patience needed to do theory and you know to, to play with path and i also got some flexibility in terms of thinking and not be and using different tools different software different theories from physics for example or math or computer science so that's one thing and then from um from you know from uh, my the people i worked with in neuroscience which was completely different in the sense that I, it was a big step in my career uh, i got of course some other skills because neuroscience is very different from doing research in math so for example you need a deep understanding of experiments uh, of 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 even you know how to to, to test your hypothesis um, that try to decipher and um, basically set light on the complexity of the brain, which is very, very special organ, right? It's nothing like, you know, the abstractions and the and the reductionism that we use all the time in physics. Uh, also, it's more collegial than, you know, the usual career of a mathematician where work is done in isolation. In neuroscience, you know, it's, it's about teamwork and being uh, very, you know, friendly and collaborative and working together with and communicating with psychiatrists and, uh, people, like I said, who do experiments, um, doctors, a a biologists, psychologists. So you need some other sort of, let's say, um, abilities or capabilities there. Uh, the ability to really be a bit zoom out from your narrow field and uh, try to look at the larger picture and try to communicate the essence of the math or of your you know, niche calculations uh, and make them interesting for someone who comes from a completely different uh, vantage point and has a different language like a doctor for example uh, or a psychologist so yeah so there was things like that that i got from uh, you know from these excellent people i i was very lucky like i said uh, to have worked with and then on this slide by the way you see some of the people that are working or have worked with me uh, in my methods lab in uh, in london now yeah it's really interesting and um that you you know that you say that um with the zooming out talking with different people kind of adapting to different uh 
subfields and languages. And I don't know why, but I feel like most speakers that that come here, um, you know, that that have lately, you know, some very successful uh, projects and 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 published well. Most of them have at least like one person in a group like that uh, that is able to do that, like to to integrate different fields, different theories into one project. Do you think that it's more important nowadays to be able to do it? Or I was also thinking maybe just um, people, they just accept to come here also because it's more, they're more flexible, you know, to, to, to do, to try this format out. I'm not saying, I'm just trying to ask, do you think it's a bias the, about, that people come here? that we haven't at Dana said, or do you think that's actually something that nowadays we need to do to to have like this interesting project going? I think modern science um, and exciting questions necessitate or require this kind of, you know, flexible interdisciplinary approaches, thinking outside the box. And my presumption is that you have selected let's say or people who have something interesting to say on this uh, you know on this uh, on this event on this clubhouse um, so maybe there is a, a small bias there that by the mere necessity to talk about uh, a topic that would appeal to a larger audience your speakers uh, have this sort of threat because it's only by being, like we said, you know, interdisciplinary and zooming a bit, being able to zoom out and form coalitions between different branches of science. It's only then that you can try, you know, and uh, solve some of the modern problems that would interest uh, a larger audience. Yeah, um, yeah, it's interesting. I kind of had the same thought process. And just one more question, because I think it's kind of right now, uh, before we dive into your research, because I think it's kind of um, relevant right now. Um, how much do you think this type of zooming out in to solve big problems will still happen by oh, humans? Oh, that's not the end of the story. Oh, I think. Sorry, I, I did you because you got cut a bit. Oh, I'm so sorry. Uh, no, the, the zooming out to solve big questions, right, or big puzzles. I think I think partly it's half of the story. Zooming out is needed. It's definitely needed for a good, yeah. let's say, uh, talk to a larger audience. But I I don't think that this is the only thing we need um, yeah. today, as you can imagine. I guess everybody yeah. would agree with that. I think the other half is either great technology, and this is how our society tries to sort out uh, open questions and challenging questions, uh, or deep thinking, which sometimes we tend to not think a lot about that. So I, I would put forward that we need also some, you know, deep ideas, some going into a little bit depth. Um, so not only, you know, breadth, but also depth is also important if we are gonna solve things that haven't been solved before. Yeah, exactly. I, I agree. And how much do you think AIs and technology will play a role? Like 
masking because we had a few guest speakers starting doing that like even the title of uh, their work was you know collaboration human ai collaboration and then the other thing is because i'm asking there was a recent un big meeting where experts of different fields trying to solve like humanity problems interviewed like the eight most advanced ais to solve like big questions like i feel like we are doing this already without having talked enough about it what do you think also for your work how much will we still think and should we still think more? yeah that's exactly very good intro to my to the top here by the way that's exactly how i have framed it because like you say it's a very prevalent approach, what, uh, you know, thinking, okay, if we use powerful machine learning algorithms, a big data, for example, and powerful technology, yeah, we'll do, we'll do miracles. And that's, again, true to a large extent, but my argument, and also because of my math background that I mentioned earlier, right, I, and my mathematics and physics, let's say, um, education, um, I think we need again technology cannot solve everything can solve many many things that we had no idea how to solve in the past but my uh, let's say thesis here in this talk will be that to make progress even in technological advances like brain computer interfaces that i will talk today about we need deeper uh, understanding from the point of view of physics and math uh, complementing technology. Technology is not enough. Even if we have the best tools, technological tools, for example, from uh, interacting with the with brain activity, things like what Neuralink is trying to do, for example, even if we have that, this is not the end of the story. We will not solve the problem. We will not, you know, for example, uh, interact and change and um, the way thoughts are generating the brain. We won't uh, um, treat patients with uh, neurological diseases and disorders. Uh, we want uh, optimize or help, um, you know, humans and the human brain achieve its best performance, if you like, uh, by just, you know, putting a computer next to it and saying, okay, let's leave AI now do the job for us. Yeah, I, I, I think, yeah, I, I think um, that's really good introduction, and I agree. And um, let's start to dive into your work. I'm sorry that the free time took so long. Um, but yeah, um, let, the stage is yours, basically. Everyone, please access the slides that are pinned on top of the room. And uh, yeah, thank you so much. Thanks, Lorena. And I would say that we, we are already in the talk let's say, if, we, if I wanted to, to say it like that. So I will skip a couple of slides. Uh, so we really, to, to tie what I'm going to say now with what we're just discussing. So let's go to slide five uh, very quickly. Uh, so today I will talk about brain-computer interfaces. And on this slide, um, I have put some key figures uh, in terms of uh, development of, uh, of BCIs. Uh, so, but I will not go really and uh, review this now. I will go to um, slide six, which says challenges for BCI. 
and it really follows up on what we were just discussing, which is, let's say, take this sort of technological applications, brain-computer interfaces, right, BCIs. What are the problems there? What are the limitations? And what solutions do we have? And I will say, like I was just saying, that the solutions can be based on technology, and technology and you know advances like neural links are important, and I'll say why in a minute, but then there is something more to it. And this will be the focus of the, of the presentation. So first of all, what are the challenges, right? And, and what, are, what sort of BCIs do we have? And what challenges do they have? So what you see here on the left on this slide, these boxes, I guess everybody can see that hopefully. On the, Katarina, please tell me if uh, the slide numbering or anything is off. So coverage, is on the uh, vertical axis, right? So uh, then on the horizontal, on the X and Y axis, we have spatial resolution and temporal resolution. And you see a big yellow box uh, on, this, uh, on this slide, which is ECOG, electrocorticography. So this is a technique where we put electrodes on the scalp. And the, this big box means that it has excellent spatial resolution because we put lots of electrodes, excellent temporal resolution. They are relatively close to the skull, so they pick activity very fast from the neurons in the brain. And also, they, we have excellent uh, coverage, brain coverage, so it means that it covers a large part of, uh, like I said, of the brain, because we put them everywhere. Um, so this is one technique, right, of brain imaging, and the other boxes that you see here, uh, the other colors, are other techniques, like if you look at the legend, you have EEG and the fMRI and uh, uh, multi-electrode arrays and the, and the yellow stick, like we said. So this is all to say that we can have basically uh, different techniques with different resolutions and brain coverage. And usually, if you compare techniques that record activity or try to interact with brain activity that are non-invasive versus the ones that are inside the brain and they are invasive, like putting electrodes, the non-invasive ones like EEG, for example, or fMRI that you see here, will have problems. We'll have either a low spacer or a low temporal resolution. Even ECOG, of course, compared to them, has better spatial-temporal resolution, but compared to invasive recordings, again, has the same problem. Other things, other problems for non-invasive techniques, again, like electroencephalography, like fMRI, when we record activity from outside the brain, outside the skull, is that we cannot identify the sources where the neurons that generate this activity are exactly. So this is called the volume conduction effect or source reconstruction problem. And imagine now that we want to interact. This is what we try to do, right, in computer interfaces, <clears throat> in BCIs. We try to interact and change and neuromodulate or modulate neural activity, like with TDCS, Again, that's low precision because of the low resolution that these techniques have. So it cannot be very precise. There are, of course, some techniques recently with ultrasound that get some millimeter resolution. But still, if you think how many neurons there are in big patches, even of millimeter square uh, size, uh, still, we, we cannot really interact with the brain or record from the brain or read activity at, the fine, at this uh, fine level of uh, detail that we will need to have efficient uh, devices. So what can we do? We can go now invasive, which is the next slide, right? And what you see on the left here is 
is a graph showing when you put an electrode inside now the, the cortical tissue, as you can imagine, there's damage caused. So the, the body reacts, you can cause inflammation. If you leave it, the electrode in there for a couple of days, uh, there will be degradation of the electrode. So again, there are problems. So, and this is, by the way, what Neuralink and other companies try to do, right? Primarily, they say, I want to build the best technology, the best kind of invasive ele electrodes that will not uh, cause tissue damage, will not cause inflammation, etc., and will be, you know, very, very close and very, very small uh, and very, very close to the neurons so that I have very high uh, spatiotemporal resolution. So very good precision in my neuromodulation with minimum or zero uh, damage of the brain. That's exactly, that's why, uh, for example, Neuralink, it took them like six, seven, eight years, I think, or at least, yeah, I think six or seven years to get FDA approval for human uh, experiments and human trials, because of course they they needed to show that they have good technology, good electrodes that don't damage and don't cause uh, you know any side effects to the people who are going to try them, to the humans who are going to try them. So that's basically how the community or many people uh, try to come up with solutions to this very very hard problem, right, of brain decoding, of neurostimulation. I will say that even if we solve this now, and even if we have answers to these challenges that I talked so far, there are more challenges to come, which is slide eight now. And there is a challenge that we can never mitigate, we can never avoid, which is the immense biological complexity of the brain that we're trying to, you know, to record from, to, to read, but also to interact and, like we said, uh, you know, modulate. So, we do not, if we want to, let's say, have efficient readouts of brain activity, I think this sort of questions that I have here with the bullet points on slide eight are important, right? We need to know what are we measuring? We're measuring okay, electrical activity, but where does it come from? Uh, what information is contained in this activity that we're interacting with and also in the biological underpinnings and the biological, you know, uh, the proteins and the filaments and the, the microtubules uh, and all the cytoskeleton parts and the neurons. What sort of information is there? And then when we throw currents and try to, to change brain activity, how do these currents affect all this immensely complex system? So no matter how good technology we have, we can never somehow uh, have ready-made questions for us, you know, free questions to this, uh, sorry, free answers to these questions. We can, of course, use this good technology to, to try and, you know, uh, answer all this, but this is not the end of the story. We need to have some theory of neurobiology. Uh, similarly, for example, to what we have in any other physical system, right? Uh, we have devices like the um, uh, I don't know, electrical devices in the lab in solid state physics, for example. Um, we can measure different, uh, you know, the electric properties, etc. But then we need a theory that tells us what are the physics or biophysics behind all this. So that's basically the intro. Uh, and this is what I want to talk a little bit about so far. By the way, Katarina, I don't know, do we take questions as we go or do we have questions at the end? 
Um, if people have questions in the meantime, um, and then, but but for now it seems like uh, we'll be more in the end. But yeah, please everyone, if you have questions along the way, um, just let us know. Thank you. Yeah, and if I don't see it because I'm looking at the slides, Katarina, yeah, uh, please feel free to to tell me. Yeah. Okay, so the answer to this last challenge, slide nine, that I want to put forward is biophysics. So we have the implant, we have slide nine, like I said, uh, the neurons uh, near the implant, right, that are affected. And what uh, we are doing and I'm doing is we are trying to build detailed biophysical models uh, of this biological infrastructure. And by that, I mean models that describe the morphology, the physiology, the anatomy of neurons and neural populations and brain circuits, uh, their dendrites, and we use, for example, cable theory there, and how they can group together into uh, neural networks. Uh, and slide 10 now shows exactly, you know, from the lab, what we're trying to describe, right? What is an, an elementary um, brain circuit. So if you take a brain, the rat brain, let's say a mouse brain, and you cut a slice of it, or you cut it into slices like people do in the labs every day, and you take one slice and you stain it with certain uh, you know, substances, you can see, like, identify the sort of neurons that comprise basically the brain tissue. And this is what you see on slide 10 on the left. And different, so uh, dif at different depths in the cortex, we have different neurons that are grouped together more or less, as you see, at least in sensory cortices. Uh, and then we have these layers in Latin numerals, one, two, three, four, five, etc. And you can take uh, these uh, results from cytoarchitectonics and build a, a cartoon picture like the one on the right-hand side of the slide uh, that says laminar structure and circuitry, and you have different neurons in different colors. Uh, for example, you have these pink neurons, uh, and they are called superficial pyramidal cells because they are pyramidal cells. They have this, you know, characteristic uh, triangular soma, uh, these long axonal uh, uh, dendrites, uh, uh, sorry, axonal arbors and basal uh, and uh, dendrites, etc. Uh, you have these other pyramidal cells in blue and uh, and black, basically, you have spinal steady cells. So what I'm saying is by looking at the structure of the cortex, we can uh, identify different neurons that are replicated in many parts, in many brain areas, or even within the same brain area, there are lots of those. And they have and they live in different depths across the cortex, and they are connected with each other. And they have excitatory inhibitory effects at each other. And all this is what anatomy gives us. So having this knowledge, we can go now to slide 11. We can build biophysical or neural models uh, that describe precisely this structure. If there are, for example, columns, meaning you know some sort of homogeneous special arrangement of neural uh, populations, uh, we can describe these different neural types, meaning, OK, there are different geometry, um, you know, size or location or orientation, and, and then there are effects, and then, you know, uh, basically, uh, if there are neurotransmitters, so how do they respond to incoming inputs and what sort of outputs do they produce? And this will relate to um, 
the ion channels on neural membrane and also to whether they are, tar they, they are targeted by different neuromodulator systems, you know, dopamine, for example, etc. Also, if there are neurotransmitters that mediate uh, synaptic communication, and of course, how all these neurons of the same and different populations are connected to each other. So all these things we can have, of course, they will always be a little bit simplified compared to the real world, but at least assuming that there is some sort of regularity in the brain slices, that, like the one we saw, we saw before, if there are more or less similar neurons connected in a similar way, living in the similar layers across you know, at least a certain parts of the, of the cortex, we can say that, okay, we can have a in vitro now or a sort of video game kind of representation of this circuitry uh, in our computer and build a neural model. And what sort of predictions does a model like that uh, give us? If we go to slide 12, it gives us, for example, time series, right, from different populations. So here, what you see on slide 12, you see the same exact populations that we had before on this uh, slice from the rat brain, for example, or the, or the I think it's the, the cat brain in this case, and the cat visual cortex precisely. And so you have four populations, superficial pyramidal cells, spine stellate cells, inhibitor in their neurons, deep pyramidal cells. And then we know how they are connected because we see in, a, in our Sartero architectonics, uh, you know, where one neuron, the dendrites begin and end, for example, and the somata, etc. And then we can record, even, you know, uh, get, take a slice and throw current and then record activity in the lab from these neurons so we know how they behave, how fast they respond, for example. So we build a model that has exactly the same sort of responses. And one model that we are using and has support from different, you know, um, anatomy studies is this model that you see here where the superficial pyramidal cells have these gamma peaks so they oscillate around you know 40 to 70 hertz now the peak on this slide is 55 uh, hertz and the other the deep pyramidal cells if you now look at the bottom left they show an alpha peak so then this whole cortical circuit it produces and people have measured that also in the lab and even in vivo with laminar electrodes in monkeys, alive monkeys, that you have uh, basically this sort of power spectra that you record locally, if you put a very, very tiny electrode in the monkey brain, uh, and you see the spectra at the bottom right corner where you have an alpha peak and a gamma peak, simultaneously, so this thing with two peaks. So this is uh, the sort of you know, predictions, the sort of biophysics we can describe, and I won't go into more detail, so I'll move on a little bit. So let's go now to slide, uh, to slide 14, basically. So, so far what we have seen is that we can have some sort of in silico, uh, you know, a video game kind of implementation of neural dynamics and neural circuitry with different frequency bands, for example, uh, uh, responses with different, you know, periodicity generated from different populations that are, however, connected to each other, and they have some new modulation properties. They have either excitatory, inhibitory effects, etc. Now I'm saying, if we want to understand the effects of brain stimulation, right, and build good BCIs, we also need to have not only models for the neural population, but also models that describe the stimulation effect, the stim effects. 
the biophysics of it, which is slide 14 again. So here in slide 14, you see exactly the same idea we had before on the left. We have these neural populations now, these are these disks, blue, green, and, uh, and gray. So this is like similar thing like the, uh, the circuit we had on the previous slide. And on top of that, we have a stimulation electrode. And what is the biophysics here? The biophysics is that we need to find a way of reconciling, basically, the electrical activity of the neurons that produce spiking activity, for example, with the currents that are flowing to, uh, throughout our electrodes. And we need to understand, you know, how do this, can, can this be combined? But So we need a model for that. And I'll come to this in a minute, keep it in mind. But let me show you here the experimental results. What happens, basically, when we throw current in these neurons, and people have measured this, both with models and in, uh, in vitro, in slices, what happens. This is work by some colleagues uh, that we're working with in, uh, at Josh Hopkins, and it's this plot on the right-hand side, where on the vertical axis, we have the change in firing rate. Uh, and I will say in a minute what I mean by change, change from what. Now on the horizontal axis is the pulse rate. Now the pulse rate is basically, we have pulsatile stimulation. So it's how many pulses per second that's what you see on the horizontal axis. How many pulses per second um, the, the, uh, the stimulus electrodes uh, uses to put energy into this uh, neural circuit? So it's you know an alternating current with 200 millibars in density, and you see this 200 at the top of this plot. Then in, inside this plot, you see three curves, and let's focus, for example, on the green and the blue. The green says it's 15 SPS spikes per second, and the blue is 80. So basically, this S, capital S, is the 15 and 80 S spikes per second, are what? Are the spontaneous firing rates of the blue and the green population. So if you didn't have anything happening, uh, so no current from the electrodes, these neurons have some spontaneous activity, and this is their fre its frequency. Now, when you put an electrode with this, a pulsatile stimulation through this electrode, with this intensity and this pulse rate, then you get these green and yellow curves or lines, which is basically how does the firing rate, the spontaneous firing rate of, of 15 and 80 spikes per second change as a result of different uh, pulse rates values, basically. So this is all to say that depending on the channel kinetics and the intrinsic physiology of these populations and all their, uh, you know, uh, proper uh, physical properties, the same sort of stimulation that also has a range, right? Different pulse rates will have different effects. And to have an efficient BCI and efficient stimulation, we need to understand basically this interplay between the stimulation and these biophysical properties of the of the neurons which takes me now to the slide number 15 which is my claim is that we need to change a little bit our mindset and not think like many people in neuroscience think that we understand neural activity the activity of these neurons the blue the green the gray in terms of spike rates but we need to have a different level of description which is the field description the electric field the reason is that neural activity produces fields, 
electrodes, pulsatile stimulation or other stimulations also produce fields. So it is at the field level that we can understand sort of, you know, there is a common language of how the two um, basically systems interact. And what I saw in this current is basically how this endogenous electric field is generated. So basically you have the membrane and that separates the extracellular from the intercellular space and you have lipids and, and ions uh, entering through and exiting the, the neurons through uh, ion channels. So there is some discontinuity basically of the extra electric field that gives rise to this extracellular field. And then once you have the electrodes, it has also you know this uh, current flowing inside. So it, it has a different mechanism uh, that relates, of course, for example, to you know to uh, to the material from which it is uh, you know constructed, etc., etc. So I'm not saying it's a trivial thing, but still, it also produces a field, and then these two fields interact. So slide 16 now uh, is saying that, and this is our work, that very simply, if we know the sources, if we know the neurons, we can calculate the electric field of uh, a neural population. In the same way, from school, you might remember, if I know Newton's law, I can calculate basically the gravitational field and gravitational force, which is what you see, the similar equation from school, from high school, uh, you see on the right-hand side here. And on the left-hand side, this um, figure shows us the predictions of our model for the electric field. So basically, we have these neural populations, and the more you remember the neural model we had before. And on top of that, we use uh, electromagnetism to get not the neural activity per se, but the corresponding electric fields. And this is what you see on the vertical axis here. And then on the X and Y axis, you have the location, so the, you know, the position in space, and the time. Uh, on slide 17, I won't say too many things, because there's some math here, it doesn't matter. But again, what do I have? I have a model of neural activity for this slice that we saw earlier. And on top of that, I have another model for the electric field and the assumption is that i assume you know that i have a, you know a cylinder around its neuron and then this defines some sort of extracellular space and then i can do some math and predict neural activity which is uh, slide 17. so to sum up slide 18 now just to emphasize this take-home message that to understand bci we need to understand the interaction between electric fields and to understand that we need two levels of by physical description of you know of of neural activity, the, the spiking level, the neural level, and the electric field level. Now, okay, let's see if there are any questions. I have missed something. Uh, no, no questions so far. But um, uh, from from the audience right now. But um, so I think it's it's really interesting what you're saying and um you know there has been a few recent publications that um you know the the shape of the structure basically plays a very important role for the activity of the brain like on a larger scale but probably also on a sh uh, smaller scale how does that does that play a role in in your model too, or are you going to add that basically that the three D structure, um, you know, because I guess it's a it's a feedback mechanism, I would 
probably say um, there's a chicken and egg problem there, but um, you know, if first the 3D structure basically influences a lot of the activity patterns, or if the activity patterns shape the 3D structure in the end, like it goes both ways, I would say. But do you, what do you think about um, that factor? Yeah, I'll come to that. Shall we also invite the uh... Uh, Nima from the audience, and then I'll take both questions. Okay, yeah, Nima, please go think? ahead. Uh, hi, I everyone. Yeah. Uh, thanks, uh, uh, Dimitris. Um, I have a question about uh, conductivity in the page 17. What about conductivity? Is it about uh, electron conductivity or whole? Or, uh, thanks for uh, your description about that. Sorry, electron or what? Uh, or holes, or uh, or something uh, that have a positive uh, charge, something like uh, a neutron, uh, something like uh, like protons, and uh, in fact, in uh, uh, in, in uh, some kinds of. Uh, 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 of fields, we haven't just uh, electron for conductivity. Uh, in this slide, uh, what about uh, conductivity? What what do you mean about conductivity? Uh, is, is it electron conductivity or something else? Yeah, okay. So well, I made the note for both questions. Let me go first to the first question, you know, Katarina's about uh, basically structure, right, and how these effects. I hope you can hear me. Yeah. I lost in. Hello? Hello? Yep. Can you hear me? Ah, sorry. Yeah, yeah. I thought because yeah. I, something happened on the, on the phone here. Uh, yeah, so, yeah, structure, right? And how much structure uh, uh, plays a role. Uh, by the way, what you said that it fits back, it's not trivial. I, I believe that. Our theory supports that. But it's not trivial how this is done and even if, if this is done. In, in a feedback fashion. I'm not saying that, of course, dynamics and structure relate, right? We know, for example, default mode networks and eigenmodes in the brain measured with fMRI, for example, etc. Yes, of course, there is you know, this connectome story. But does it happen at a micro scale, for example? And does it feed back and affect neurodevelopment, for example? Yeah, all these are open questions. I have an idea. Maybe we'll come to that. I do believe that the electric field plays a role there. And there are results from you know, biology supporting this. Um, now the does this, by the way, cover your your question about structure, or or, or you, I, I'll come also in more detail in a, in a second. So um, yeah, let me preempt what I will say by saying that at the micro scale, the connectivity structure that, that's what I will show in a sec plays a role for recalling for memory recall. So to to store and recall and use and control, let's say, information, yes, structure is also very important. And I'll, uh, I'll say that in a sec. And again, structure is formed, in my theory, uh, is, a, is, a, is a byproduct of electric fields. So in a sense, this neural activity at the field level fits back and somehow creates and shapes structure. This is the cytoelectric coupling, basically, hypothesis that to since we'll talk about it later, but maybe you guys have seen the, um, the paper, 
uh, that somehow if we want to do efficient information processing um, and store process and manipulate information efficiently uh, the emerging electric fields from all you know sources which is not only the neurons but also the cytoskeleton the microtubules that many people like for example and associated with consciousness etc so all these structures and these fields that come out of them need to fit back and change the mesoscale organization and the connectivity patterns uh, in brain activity that's the the argument of our structure now let me uh, go to the conductivity question also uh, so what we assume here right is we take uh, um, a biophysical model which comes actually i have on slide 17 uh, the the motivation comes from the heart, heart study studies of the heart and basically we have you know uh, two spaces two areas that have distinct uh, conductivity so in a sense the the, the properties, the resistance that uh, uh, a, 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 an electron would find or an ion would find while propagating differs. That's what defines uh, these two spaces. So inside and outside the membrane, you might remember the picture earlier, or you can look at slide 17. There are different, basically, uh, different proteins, different lipids, uh, different substances. So the, you expect the how easy it is for ions and electrons uh, to propagate will differ and this is crucial and this is the sigma uh, e over sigma i um, basically factors in the first equation slide 17. so yeah it's both ions and cations if if, uh, if that's what you are asking okay so let me go back to the structural question then and the and go to slide 19 now uh, and think about what exactly are the neurons that generate these electric fields and that store memories and thoughts, etc. And there are several ways to, which I also described in our paper, to record those neurons. So you have optical imaging, in immediate early gene expression and the genetics. You have electrophysiology. And in the interest of time, I won't go and tell you about what is shown on this slide. I will tell you rather about slide 20 slide 20 now uh, which and summarize it quickly uh, by saying that we can identify and manipulate these memory neurons so these neurons that have thoughts inside we can see exactly which ones they are and we can find for example how they are connected and how different memories correspond to different patterns of these neurons and different connectivity and structure like you said earlier katarina and basically the same thing, maybe let me move on to slide number 21. So it's this, going back to Katarina's question about structure, that is this connectivity patterns, how neurons talk to each other, right? Which is not only anatomical, uh, it's not only anatomy, but it's effective connectivity, basically. It's how they talk. So it's this, the patterns or the structure in the dynamics of the population. So what you see here is the, the top and the bottom row, you have two different inputs, right? You have two different memories, let's say. So it's, as I say, on the vertical axis here, again, slide 21. So you have mnemonic stimulation, and then you have different neurons being activated. So different patterns or structures in the neural dynamics you record. So the blue one and the red one, because different neurons are coactivated and uh, basically in different uh, succession, for example. 
Um, so memories live in patterns, and there are many processes that um, basically underlie the formation of these patterns. So you can think, for example, you take a rat, you put it in a cage, uh, you, so it sees the visual uh, space around, so the space around him, it's input one, you know, it's the cage, the, the white cage, for example, the white box. So it's input one, and then it forms a memory of the white box. So it's the box, for example, where if you put the rat, it's going to get food. And then you see this coactivation of the blue neurons, and then when you put, again, the rat in the same box, these are uh, this return back to, to life, basically. So definitely me uh, memories do not live in the neural activity per se, but in the pattern of activity. That's what we, we mean here. And then the red box, or the, you know, the other thing, is the, the bottom row. To form these patterns, protein synthesis and consolidation and synaptic plasticity mechanisms like LTP are very important. So already we start seeing the effect of proteins and the cytoskeleton, which supports the connections between neurons in this. Uh, and then the question is, of course, how are these patterns formed, right? And how can we answer this question? So that's that's what we want to we want to understand. Remember, going back and giving a, a high level summary. I think I have a slide somewhere. Let me go to slide 24. So we summarize, and then I'll uh, I'll tell you a couple of a couple of things from the previous slide. Slide 24, which is the summary so far. So we have groups of neurons that represent thoughts and memories in the pattern of connections. And of course, when we use these memories, they oscillate and we have responses. Or some, doesn't mean that they are fully periodic oscillations, but there is some, some kind of mesoscale periodic activity. That's what I mean. Uh, and this is good, of course, for metabolic efficiency because they don't need to fire all the time, only when it's you know, when they use the, the memory. And these neurons, remember, they produce electric fields, so we need to understand the biophysics, how this is happening, and we have a neural model uh, for neural activity, and then we have an electric field model on top. And again, the reason is, what are we aiming at, right? So that the BCI produces also fields, so we need to understand all these interactions, and also we need to understand the role of the electric field, and if it's just a mere phenomenon. So that's what we have said so far. Uh, so before I take more questions, let me go back to slide 22 now and tell you what we can record, right? Slide 22 from this group of neurons. So like I said, when we recall a memory, we have these neurons like the blue and red on slide 21 um, firing, right? And, we, and some of them they fire synchronously and oscillate coherently. And this is what we record. We record oscillations with local field potentials that people might have, might be familiar with. And common thing is hippocampus, for example, lots of these, uh, lots of these oscillations. And this is what you see on slide 22 at the bottom. So hippocampal oscillations in different, you know, uh, areas of hip, uh, basically, and different layers. And you have the current source density estimates also. And by the way, on slide 23, uh, 23 we can see these you know, oscillations also, even in humans, even with MEG. That's slide 23. OK, so let's go to slide 25 now. So how are these patterns of connectivity and all these oscillations controlled and generated and guided? So the claim that we make here 
uh, is a generalization of this phenomenon of fabric coupling, this hydroelectric coupling, is that the field generated by the neurons, by the proteins, by the cytoskeleton, by the filaments, all this, tends around, once it's generated, right, tends around and then guides each neuron to respond in such a way that it supports memory maintenance and recall and processing, basically. So that's the, that's the thing. So, and why, what is the analogy here and why do I show this, uh, this conductor image? So I said the field is like a conductor of an orchestra of neurons plus uh, the cytoskeleton, basically. Um, so what is the analogy? The analogy is that the, assume that you want to play a song, right? Uh, to play a symphony. If you have only a violin or, uh, um, or, or a bass or, or any instrument, even if you have two of those, it's not possible to play a song. But if you start forming a quartet, for example, you know, four of those or, or, or six, or then what will happen even if you put, and the people start training with each other, and if you put also a, a conductor on top, then once you do that, you'll get st the stability and the guidance you need for your ensemble, in this case for your orchestra, to produce the symphony, to play the song. And the same thing happens uh, in, in neurons, but there, of course, the electric field is not a different, uh, you know, identity is basically this higher level of information representation that feeds back and has top-down influences to individual neurons. So this, this is a functional role for a faptic coupling and the prediction that we need a faptic coupling or cytoelectric coupling, which is the generalization of a faptic coupling when we put uh, you know, cytoskeleton and microtubules and proteins, etc., inside and say, you know, make similar arguments. So we need these top-down influences to have memories. If we don't have them, we don't have memories. If we have a network of areas that is a memory network, like we know in rats, for example, there are 50 areas like that in optogenetic experiments, then in each of these areas, this will happen. There will be a conductor. There will be the electric field feeding back to the, to the neurons. So if we go to slide 26 now, 26, this is the picture I want us to remember from, you know, at least from the talk so far, that we have an orchestra and we have the brain and in an orchestra, you sit in the auditorium and you hear different sections, you know, the violins and the piano and, you know, the, uh, you know, the drums, etc. Now, in the brain, you sit in the lab and you record from different brain areas which are similar to the orchestra sections. And, of course, you don't hear activity, but you record it with LFPs and the things we, we discussed before, basically. That's how you hear the symphony. And the whole game now, if we want to understand how we can change the electric field of the neurons with BCI and uh, how we can read the brain efficiently, is really understand how, you know, uh, basically the interaction between the conductor and each section of the orchestra, which is, yeah, slide 27, these levels of description, the neural and the field level, and how they essentially interact. These are the two arrows on slide 27. And by the way, on slide 28, we know 
there's lots of evidence for a fabric coupling. I don't have too much time to go into that. Um, I have put a slide here. But the point is that we know that the field, even the endogenous field, drives neural activity. And if we also put an external field in neurons, in neural slices, we can block uh, wave propagation, for example, etc. And then the point of the paper that motivated our discussion today, uh, by the way, sorry, the fabric coupling slide is 28. I go to 29 now. I hope I'm not going too far. Let me know. Point, the point of slide 29 is not, not only neurons oscillate and generate fields, but also the cytoskeleton oscillates. So the, like I said, the, the organelles and the, and the parts of the extracellular uh, matrix and the microfilaments uh, and, and these other proteins, you know, tubulin and actin, basically, they all oscillate. And people, what you see on slide 29 is recordings of these oscillations, very uh, high frequency oscillations with uh, scanning, tunneling microscopy and the Raman spectrophotometry, etc. different techniques show that they have their own endogenous electric fields and they do have electric properties and they oscillate. And on slide 30, you see uh, there are two, uh, yeah, uh, actually I can't see that. Yeah, on this slide precisely, but there is a video I have put here, but also you see the, uh, I forgot now, never mind. Sorry for that. But you can see on the figure that around these filaments and these microtubules generated by different proteins like tubulin here, there is an ambient, um, an ambient electric field generated here depicted by this uh, orange cloud and the red arrows. Now, if you put, how do you know that these are electrically charged? You can confirm this in the lab, and you can put one of these, you can you know, take a brain slice, take one of these microfilaments, these small um, cylinders, and put it in an electric field, and you can show that it changes its structure, right? If you change the orientation, for example, like a compass. You put it in a compass, you know, in the gravitational field, it changes your imitation, depending on where you are. You put this thing here with electrical properties or electromagnetic properties, this protein inside an external electric field, it also changes its shape and its structure and its uh, geometry. Same thing. So what does it tell me? It tells me that they produce electric fields and they're also affected by them. They are charged, effectively. So let's go now to, once I've told you all this, let's go to slide number 31 which takes us to, again, the main topic or the, the focus of this presentation, which is cytoelectric coupling. And cytoelectric coupling says, as, a, uh, as an idea, as I've already mentioned, that to have a thought, we need to, our brain area to produce a good enough electric field, which can like, be a conductor for the neurons around it, which means, good enough means it can organize the components of the cytoskeleton and tune it and to process information efficiently. And of course, because these you know, filaments and all these other structures are very, very, very small at the nanoscale, right? What we have here is, is a connection between the macroscopic scale where we observe brain oscillations and traveling waves, for example, across hemispheres and the microscopic uh, structures of proteins and filaments. And all scales work together in concert to uh, basically uh, be, yeah, optimize information processing in the brain. That's the idea. I think that's another good point for me to take a, a break and then maybe we have a little bit of more time to, 
to wrap up. But uh, I, I would like to invite questions, if there are any. Yeah, thank you. Uh, Willy joined us. I wanted to, and he posted a few things in the chat. So welcome, Willy. Ah, and, really? Hmm. Yeah, and then also Dr. Shah, um, you might have some comments or questions. So yeah, feel free to unmute them. Yeah, thank you. Yeah, Dr. Shah, please go on. Sure, thank you. So thank you so much, Dimitris, for your wonderful work. And uh, I was wondering to ask you, because you mentioned about the, um, I mean, as I, I saw that you just put the B cells there as a memory cells, and you mentioned about the pattern. And I was wondering, because when we just, uh, we have the comparison between the healthy and fibrotic tissue, and also you mentioned about the uh, photo initiator and photo pattern. I was wondering what what might be your comment about the fibrotic tissue and how we can apply your hypothesis for that type of tissue because we have a lots of materials nowadays. Uh, they are actually biocompatible material. I see. Yeah, we have any other question before we come to this. I could take also or. Is there anything else? Or I'm checking also the web the chat. Yeah. Uh, uh, if I you want to collect questions, yes. Collect the questions, then I would uh, I would uh, say my point. Um, thank you for giving us a new perspective, and uh, I as I understand it, and I'm not in neuroscience, so I'm overwhelmed by the new facts and. Um, could not fully digest all the all the stuff but with your metaphor of the conductor uh, you might um, yeah create interesting new research perspective and experimental questions and after all uh, new models uh, how um, my first question is how do you per perceive this uh, how is the maturity of of having a new model because it's a difference to have a new observation and uh, a collection of uh, very valuable observations or then coming to a model from the metaphor to the model this is my first question. The second one is uh, how do you relate possibly to Michael Levin and his interest in um, bioelectricity? And the last one, the third is um, <laughs> because uh, on a slide, you start with uh, oscillating stuff, yeah, and it reminded me of uh, uh, the wonderful properties of coupled oscillators. What's going on? Yeah, maybe down to the uh, to the finer structure you just mentioned uh, on the last slides. Um, I have to go there uh, to have the, the name for it. You know what I mean? Probably. Uh, these scaffold structures uh, in in the in the single neuron, what's it called? And scrolling down here, um, do you know what I mean? <laughs> the the sub elements of the neuron, so to speak, yeah. That they are uh, they have to be um, inspected more closely to understand. Yeah, the filaments you mean, and the, yeah, the microtubules and the, this yeah, things, yeah. Exactly, the micro, that was what, what, what I was searching for, sorry, microtubules and so on. And um, um, my intuition is to close here uh, that 
if you look at very primitive organism and we see like in um, uh, in in uh, multicellular organism but with not much brain not central nervous uh, systems and they have uh, say 100 feet and something like this yes then uh, this oscillations uh, make a lot of cognition and adaption for the organism despite there's no central brain yeah no central nervous system there's a lot of possible just using the kind of nervosity and oscillation and coupling of the different neurons motor uh, probably motor neurons yeah and so uh, going from this very archaic um, model of a primitive organism to what the central nervous system is. Maybe it's still rather the same that from the environment you have in the sensory organs, of course, this kind of transversal waves of uh, stimuli, then uh, translated, of course, in electrical signals. But after all, it's going back to the motor neurons, to the afferent um, nervous system, and is stimulating the muscles. And then the loop is closed with the environment. And if you look with this loop uh, perspective on what's going on, maybe this could be combined with the oscillation, um, the importance of the oscillation phenomena, because then we might find that um, the, the computing of the brain is uh, um, on a different scale, so to speak, uh, between the macro and the micro level. So what we inspect now is the micro level, uh, understanding the single neuron and the, the group of neurons. But maybe we still have not found the right um, layer where, where this pattern uh, emergence and so on is, uh, is happening. What do you think about it? Is it stupid or is it a, is it a possible uh, uh, perspective on it? Thank you. Oh, thanks. Yeah, thank you for uh, these questions. Let's see. Um, so, by the way, going back to the question by and then one second. Uh, so the other question by Dr. Shah, I guess if, if I remember correct, right? Do I, do I pronounce her name? Yeah. 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 So going back to that question, just um, to, to start with this first one. So uh, you are now talking about cases where the, the brain tissue would have some damage. Is that what you meant? Yeah, it's fibrotic stage or mechanism. Fibrotic stage or mechanism can be applied for the brain. Fibrotic, you said, right? Fibrotic. Correct. So, so I guess this FIBRO, just making sure we have, we, I'm, uh, yeah, hearing fibrosis, the correct word. Fibrosis, fibrotic. Yeah, the, 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 sort of thickened, sort of thickened, let's say, or you know, some some tissue which is altered somehow. Is that what you were saying? Yes. Moderate which could be a, a result of neurodegeneration, yeah. I guess. Is that what you? Yes. You can you can just answer me based upon this. Yeah, no, sorry, I, and also the sound is not great, but on my end, but never mind. So yeah, so if let's say there is a problem which also links 
yeah, let's connect it to the question about uh, Mike Levine's work, with whom we have been, uh, yeah, initiate some uh, discussion. So the question is, right, how does uh, basically uh, new development and uh, formation of new or uh, or the decay, or the formation of new brain tissue or the decay of of tissue in, in you know, in, for example, in, in fibrosis, how would this affect basically, you know, um, the electric field generated or how, what would the role be of electric fields uh, in this whole process. So the, 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 the link to Mike's work, Dr. Levin's work, uh, and our work is the following, is that uh, we both emphasize the guiding role of emerging electric field for neurodevelopment uh, and for the structure of brain tissue. And at the same time, of course, if there is degradation, right, if there is decay, again, um, or if there is an external field, for example, applied, then this would lead to abnormal tissue development. So it would lead into, you know, uh, pathological cases like fibrosis. So the main, the similarity between their results and our results is that we both believe that the interaction between fields and, and neurons and microscale is a two-way thing. Uh, so it's, it's both ways, it's like a two-way street, which also assumes common assumption or, or conclusion, I would say, in our mental picture, that there are distinct levels. So again, if you ask a neuroscientist, let's say a neurophysiologist, they might, some of them might say, look, the neurons and the fields are the same thing. If I know the neuron, it spikes, it generates you know, some activity, some potential around it, the extracellular potential that I record with my electrodes, it's the same thing as it, like its activity, same as thing as its activity. Let's say Mike and we, and other people, I guess, say that, no, these are two different things. And many interesting phenomena come out of the interaction between these two levels. And indeed, how we learn, how we form connectivity patterns, how we form you know, memory ensembles, this is our work uh, in the brain, depends crucially on fields generated not only by neurons, but also by other structures, right? Uh, this is cytoelectric coupling hypothesis. Mike's work says, Electric fields are important, for example, and affect structure very well. You know, if I want to have limb regeneration, I need to find and uh, uh, expose the, the 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 amputated, for example, leg of the frog into the uh, the appropriate electric fields, which will nurture it and will lead to somehow um, uh, you know uh, limb uh, regeneration. Same thing with fibrosis, for example. Yeah, I, it will have an effect, maybe a, a therapeutic effect, if I have the right, uh, the right electric field. So I think I've answered a couple of questions here. Let me go to the other ones, which is, yeah, how do we go from observations to models? That's a, that's a very good question. Some people, and actually there was a Twitter discussion today that I also participated, for those of you who are on Twitter, where we're talking about similar ideas. So some people say, uh, I basically, uh, to believe your model, I need to have an experimental confirmation of this. So I need to know everything more or less. And then I just build a model supplementary to it to describe what my observations tell me. What I say, at least, you know, in, you know, uh, very succinctly here, since we don't have time to go into this whole discussion that took a day on Twitter or, or something like that, is that I want to use models to predict observations like this cytoelectric coupling is a hypothesis because we cannot predict everything we cannot predict 
basically, you know, the microtubules and how they oscillate at the same time where the monkey remembers something and we record LFPs. So we cannot have these simultaneous observations. We can have partial observations, right? That's what I showed you. I showed you LFP oscillations. I showed you microtubules with spectroscopy, for example, uh, and other microscopy, microscopy techniques. Uh, that's what I showed you. I showed you partial results, and then I have a model and a theory that unifies all of them and makes predictions and says what? That all these things that I observe partially will coordinate for, so that the brain does its job. And the way they coordinate is through electric field. But of course, I don't measure it. I predict that that would be the case. I measure parts of it again. So that's the other question. I think, yeah, and then the other thing about the motor uh, control. Um, yeah, I mean, the motor, I mean, this is one way, you know, motor commands, right? And motor cortex is only one output of the cortex, a very, a very important one, a very important way we interact with the environment. But I would say, not the only way, obviously, right? When we are embedded, an intelligent agent is embedded in a milieu, it interacts with it all the time. And basically, there are so many different different ways. But I would I would agree in general with your, uh, you know, this loop and the way you describe it uh, earlier. And I think, last comment, that yes, this information processing uh, and this interaction, this loop happens at all scales. And this exactly at the core of the cytoelectric coupling uh, hypothesis that it's the link and the coordination between microscopic, microscopic and macroscopic activity that uh, leads to intelligent behavior simultaneous in a you know coordinated fashion. Okay, so I think so, Katarina. How much time do we have? Well, it depends more uh, how much time you have. We have all the time. It's just we don't want to. <laughs> okay, I'll, I'll talk for another couple of minutes. Just, just, yeah. just wrap up the slides, and then if there are more questions, we can uh, continue for a little bit. Uh, okay, so what we have done in a recent paper, cerebral cortex. Uh, so, by the way, in this hydroelectric coupling paper, I don't know if it's on uh, Google Drive, but we describe lots of uh, evidence from biology we describe mike levin's work for example we describe uh, cognitive neuroscience evidence uh, other ideas from uh, electrodiffusion and uh, mechanotransduction and other stuff um, to, to support this hypothesis now what i'll talk in the next couple of minutes and summarize very briefly is a, a different paper a mathematical paper in cerebral cortex uh, which gives some actual evidence in, from data and math for these effects. So what are the main effects? Let's go to slide number 34. What I want to show you now is some graphs, some plots, some stats. Let's put it like that, although it's not only stats, it's also plus theory and math, but we don't have time to go into all the details. For this claim, right, that the field is a conductor. So to prove that, I will show that the field is stable, like a conductor is stable, sort of stabilizes the behavior of the musicians and also guides them. So this field also guides them. So these are the two things. And very quickly, I want to show you some plots that show that, right? So how can I do that? If we go back to slide 32, what do we have? We have a neural model, basically. So you see here a patch of the cortex and different colors correspond to different levels of depolarization, different blobs, different waves of activity and levels of activity that go up and down 
because different colors are different levels of activity. So some parts are more excited, more red, some are less excited, more blue. And that's one model we have. And then we have the other model, like uh, from, from magnetism, the electric field model. So we have these two. So what can we do now? We can fit the models to data and get basically estimates of neural activity versus field activity. That's what more or less we did. And then we can test whether the field is stable and guides. It's like a conductor. So slide 35 shows the first result, shows it's stable. Very simply, I have data from a memory task. I don't have time now to tell you all the details. It's on slide 33, but it's a very simple memory task. The monkey has to remember a location on a screen, basically an angle. That's all it has to remember. And then what you see here on slide 35 in yellow are correlated trials for the same memory. So when the monkey remembers you know, the same thing, location on the horizontal axis, for example, that's what I saw here. I see what uh, what are the electric fields that I record and what is the neural activity that I record or predict from my model, basically, because I cannot really record separately these two things. I record LFPs, obviously, or spikes. So you systematically, across all memories and across all electrodes, we found that the correlation, let's say, percentage, right, the number of correlated trials was higher when we used fields. So fields were more stable, more similar across trials compared to neural activity for all electrodes and for all memories. And this is what we saw here. So for example, the plot, the other plot uh, at the bottom right of the slides is the percentage electrodes with significantly more correlated EF estimates compared to activity estimates, neural activity. And then on the horizontal axis, that's the, these are the bars. On the horizontal axis is the Q locations, and you have six locations here. And on slide 36, we have another indication of stability that the field is more stable, right? Like a conductor than neural activity and through, through decoding and confusion matrices very quickly that there is higher decoding accuracy when we use fields compared to neural activity. That's so somehow information is preserved and there's more information in the field estimates so the decoder works better. And then the last thing or more, more or less the last thing is Slide 37, where is the guidance part, right? The guidance part says, does the, the neurons, the neural activity fits to the field or the field to activity? So we do Granger causality, and we have a variant here that we came up with, which is special Granger causality in space, because remember, these interactions are almost instantaneous at the speed of light. So the blue and the red are the activity to field and field to activity. And you see that the field to activity, the red bars here, uh, these are the Granger causal estimates for the field two neurons on the vertical axis. And the horizontal axis, we have time here. And basically, you see they're much larger. The red bars are one order of magnitude that are you know, between 0 and 8. And the blue ones are between 0 and 0 0.1. Um, so the influences from fields to neurons are much larger. So it means that you know, there is information, there is guidance from them to individual units. And then the other, uh, the last example, basically, uh, or sorry, that, that's the result about guidance is on slide 38. And I'll focus on the right-hand side uh, plot here, uh, where we have computing uh, the dissimilarity matrices. That's what you see from uh, representation similarity analysis. Uh, for fields and for uh, you know for neural activity, 
and only from different areas here, right? From FEF on the left column, on the right hand, on the right column, JCF. And what we find on the plot, you see the deviations. So the similarity of similarity matrices, this is given in the rightmost plot. The rightmost plot, if you look, it says deviation between FEF and SEF, the similarity matrices. And there are three bars for electric field, for LFP data, for neural activity. And interestingly, the only significant deviation, so the only data that showed us that information was similarly stored between areas um, were obtained when we used field estimates. So this means that there was similarity in the field representation of memories between areas, significantly simil uh, similar representation between areas. So again, this means that somehow the fields, it's not the neurons per se that spike, right? That we said earlier, but it's somehow at the field level that information is stored and maintained and is similar across areas. So the fields have this guiding role. That's the last, uh, the last argument. So slide four is my last one where you see these uh, references. And this brings me to, to closure, I think, for this uh, presentation. Thanks for your uh, for listening and your questions. And we can have more questions if there are any for a little bit. Yeah, thank you so much for, um, yeah, for this really interesting insight you shared with us, especially that thing, that uh, last information piece, that fields um, are very similar between different areas. I, th I think that is a very interesting um, key that kind of contradicts kind of a little bit. And I shared the paper in the chat. It's more up, it's a nature paper that recently came out where um, researchers kind of um, defined that each human brain has kind of a eigenstate. They kind of compared it, let's say, the shape of a violin, um, like to, to just explain it very broadly, has, you know, an influence on how, on the frequency and the sound, of course, and they kind of explained it in that way that the same is true for a brain like the 3D shape um, kind of, um, influences basically the eigenstate or the frequency of the, the activity then in the brain. And would you agree that the fact that fields recordings are similar in different regions, would you kind of think that this supports this finding or contradicts it? Because the 3D structure of different brain regions is different, but the overall 3D structure of the brain is the, is one, right? So would you would you think that the the big scale 3D structure of an individual brain is kind of what defines this field activity? I mean, it's generating it, but actually, yeah, let me uh, take a step back and emphasize that uh, what this last result shows is not necessarily similarity in the structure, right? It shows similarity in the way 
memory information is represented uh, between areas. So the idea is because especially, and actually uh, I can tell you this, which I didn't mention uh, during the talk, I, although it's on the slide, but we're going a bit, you know, uh, we went a bit fast, not too fast, but so there's some, there is a very well-known phenomenon called representational drift. It says that even in the same area for the same stimulus and the same animal, not different people, same same subject, from trial to trial, the neurons that store information, store a memory, vary. So there, that's that's a drift. That's why the representation drifts. And now the result we saw on the last slide is that information is similar at the field level, not the neural activity level, between areas. Okay, so these are two distinct right uh, results. One relates to trial by trial variability in the same area. The other says, okay, what about uh, across trial, let's say, average similarity, across trial similarity uh, between areas. It's different things. But here is why the fields provide solution to both. So. Basically, the last result says that I have similarity at the field level. Something is more, you know, special about it, more organized, somehow more systematic. And this result, this, you know, conclusion from the last result, which is basically what we found with representation similarity analysis, also fits very well, if not explaining, because, okay, it's hard to say that that's the only reason, but at least is consistent and gives a plausible maybe partial explanation of the other effect of, uh, you know, between trial variability in the same area for the same stimulus, this representational drift. How is, is it so? From basic laws of electromagnetism, we know that we can have multiple neurons, multiple musicians playing the same song. Let's say if you have an orchestra and a couple of people are sick one day because of COVID, you can have two other people replacing them and the symphony more or less you know, the orchestra will play the same symphony, the performance will be more or less similar, the memory will be similar, assuming that, of course, you know, all the other neurons more or less are the same, and you have the same conductor. And if you talk to musicians, by the way, in orchestras, you can hear them saying that, that if the conductor changes, the, you know, the whole orchestra, it's like a coach, right, for a team. If you change coach, you, you know, the team doesn't do well, the football team, you change coach. Same thing with orchestras, same thing with electric fields. So, again, the structure itself, which neurons are exactly there, right? If you lesion, let's say, a small part of the of the of the parts, doesn't matter that much. You have redundancy. You can replace one neuron, one musician with another one. But if you have the same conductor, the same field, then you can have the same memory. And the, and this is why when we compare now two orchestras, right, for the same song, FEF and SEF, two areas. It's at the field level that I find similarity on slide 38 using the presentation similarity analysis. So that's how it all fits together, I hope. Uh, yeah. Yeah, I think, um, yeah, I think it's, uh, it's really interesting because from different levels um, of function of a biological system, we had um, different researchers here from molecular biology um, that look at epigenetics and then folding, 3D folding, and what um, function these, um, these codes basically um, have 
and um, what I think was really interesting, if you compare from cell to cell, there's always uh, a redundancy, a certain amount of redundancy, how cells get to the result of making that protein, um, you know, and taking over that function. I think it's, it's uh, interesting to see that these sort of, you know, flexibility, which kind of, I would say, is a built-in resilience mechanism. I don't know if you agree that it, uh, it's true for so many levels from like the absolute, um, you know, tiny molecular level up to field potentials. Would you agree um, that, that this is kind of seen nowadays, like with new results all, um, across fields and, um, you know, scales? Yeah, we definitely see that. I mean, in a sense, that's at the core of, uh, of this hypothesis of shire-electric coupling, that you have microtubules, you know, and uh, different protein filaments oscillating at different frequencies. If you go to slide, uh, basically, uh, what slide was that? Uh, the spectroscopy results, slide 29. That's what it shows, right? It shows uh, oscillations with different energies different frequency ranges, different, in a sense, temporal scales and different spatial scales. And yeah, so there the is, thing well, is... at this scale, there is redundancy and there are people talking also about uh, something called, you know, in complex systems theory, you know, self, uh, self similarity, essentially, that there is some kind of scale invariance, for example, in the energy that exists at this scale. So yeah, things are replicated across scales. I would agree with definitely with that. Yeah, so what I'm leading to is to going back to Dr. Shah's question for treatment and when there are disorders um, for um, treat disorders, I kind of nowadays to think that, you know, doing analysis on for an N of one, being more and more data from one person, like one individual human across lifespan, maybe in the family also, like across generational, do you think that will become more and more important to actually find, especially for mental health, you know, more complex problems, that it will become more and more important to have larger data sets for an individual to come up with solutions because um, if a certain redundancy um, exists in, in different cells in the same organism, I think the different underlying mechanisms that are kind of um, faulty that lead to disorders will have, you know, a way bigger redundant, like it will be so different for different individuals. The symptoms will be maybe depression or whatever it is. But do you think we can, we can, we can still have the approach? You know, this is Alzheimer's. This is depression, and this is the pill. Don't we have to, in the future, generate basically an individual assessment? Do, do you think that the data 
like that nowadays we we can predict that in the future uh, i mean we have been doing work along these lines uh, that you just described which is uh, um, and other people of course but i'm saying biophysics again it's not the end of the story right i'm, I'm claiming that is important but big data and you know coming up with biomarkers that's how we basically come up with biomarkers we have a biophysical description then we collect data from multiple subjects and then of course we use machine learning techniques to do some subtyping for example predict interventions uh, understand drug effects uh, we definitely especially if you're talking about individual variability right different brains and different pathologies that you know there's some kind of multi-potentiality there multi-causality so different courses same uh, same uh, symptoms or the other way around we need to find patterns in large data sets my point is only that to come up with meaningful bio biomarkers and have efficient use and, and generalizability of our results with machine learning algorithms to achieve that we need to have the right sort of data features. And to my mind, one big, let's say, promising uh, space when we can look for such useful biomarkers is in the space of biophysical model parameters, because we are describing a biophysical uh, uh, basically system, which is the brain. So what I'm saying is if you go and just look at big data, I don't know, new, a time series of neural recordings or genetics or whatever, or spectroscopy and just say, okay, I'll put all these patterns there and I'll let the algorithm do everything for me. I would say that, okay, maybe you find a solution, maybe you don't find another way, maybe smarter way to do more or less similar, to play a similar game is put first some biophysical model to describe, to get some sort of principles, right? Like the ones we saw to get, uh, this, this uh, you know, this afternoon or whatever in your uh, time zone. Um, so, for example, what is the electric field? Is it distinct for neural activity? How this, how biophysics of neural sources generate different fields? How these things interact? How populations interact? How this interacts with the, you know, the, the infrastructure of the brain and the, the microtubules, et cetera, et cetera. So put all this information there and then, of course, do the same thing across individuals and then use model parameters as biomarkers, basically. That's how yeah. we see this going forward. Yeah, yeah, I understand that, but basically, I and I agree that this will be helpful. But my question is basically by using data sets in a lot of individuals. I know right now we don't have we don't have enough knowledge yet to to skip. Like we have to first. Don't you think in the future? we shouldn't do that anymore because we are diluting maybe details or overseeing details uh, because we always look what's significant in a large population. Maybe, of course, we'll find biomarkers that are kind of conserved throughout humanity, let's say, but to actually lower the pressure in the future in an individual we can use insights from large data sets over from large population to dilute out like we 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 will skip over what's wrong in that individual because it won't be significant the signal of a biomarker in that individual 
won't be a significant signal for a large population. That's what I mean. I'm, don't we, shouldn't we basically have a larger data sets from uh, N of one? Basically, that's what I'm asking. And do you think with this type of approach, with having biophysical data, um, blood biomarkers, all kinds of different biomarkers um, in the future that we will get there? Because I think that's the problem why we can't cure any mental health disorder right now. It's because exactly that problem that there's a redundancy in the system and for sure a really big one in the brain, how we get to different memories, thought process and so on. But those variations will be actually the key for each individual. Those variations will be the key to actually, let's say, cure a mental health disorder in the future. Uh, I guess you can, uh, you can imagine what my answer will be. My answer will be that um, we need to understand that. I think a large part of the limitations you're describing are due to, okay, on the one hand, maybe, you know, computational power or noise or whatever else, but more deeply, due to our limited understanding of the mechanisms themselves with regard to biology. So what, because you say, okay, there is individual variability, yes, and of course, there's such a complicated you know, thing, the brain, so it can vary, you know, the size can vary, the density can vary, I don't know, the uh, the, the, the architecture itself can vary, the, uh, the chemicals, even within the same person, maybe from time to time, there will be some, uh, some variability because, I don't know, for subcortical influences, for example, and the arousal or whatever you want. So there's so many moving parts. Still, we all have a brain, right? We all have two hands, two eyes, a brain with certain areas, certain similarities. There's something preserved, uh, some side of architecture, you know, some... Uh, uh, brain uh, topography, you know, that's the th same things. And this is not because we want to see similarities, it's because there are similarities. And the reason to my mind that there are similarities is because there are certain constraints that biology and evolution has to observe, like metabolic constraints, right? Minimize wiring length, as we all know. Uh, minimize, you know, energy consumption. Uh, find efficient, you know, use of, of chemical energy and how this is this creates basically, I don't know, blood flow or neural activity. Um, so there are conserved, there, there are general biological mechanisms that are used to build and maintain all brains. So if there are pathologies, it could be that they have a common source, a common mechanism going wrong of this sort, of right, of a biological sort. Of course, you can say, yeah, maybe some individual has something very specific happening to them. Yes, I, I can't preclude that. But my guess is that even to arrive at this N equals one kind of thing, having a good understanding of the general mechanism uh, is necessary. And yeah, I, I guess that would be my answer to your, uh, to your point there. Yeah, very interesting, Dimitris. If I may speak again shortly, uh, because I also have to leave. So we are, have, a, have a long session today, but it's super interesting. And it reminds me, uh, 
to the face of the fascination like 30 years ago, I know in the 50s, when I heard about Gerald Edelman's neural uh, group selection and something like this was very fascinated. And it's long ago and now we might have a, a, a new paradigm in, um, if I understand it right, it might be a kind of Copernican turn if you see that the role of the neuron is much more liquid and less static. And very concretely for the um, BCI, uh, the brain computer interface, uh, if I got you right, the people might still looking um, in the wrong direction or using kind of plugs which are totally incompatible which what's what's really going on in the brain because you have uh, um, this bioelectric uh, let's call it electricity patterns and uh, so to be fixated on new neurons uh, to to connect with some computer interface is uh, somehow um, not the best idea probably. And if you have a hyperdimensional substrate uh, of this 100 billion neurons and uh, this uh, trillions of dendrites, uh, and this is oscillating permanently uh, if, as long as it is alive, and you have the idea that it's all about um, using this substrate, like a substrate, uh, a medium, uh, to use the resonance, kind of resonance oscillation effects and so on. Then you have new ideas also in healthcare. That's my uh, thing I want to connect with, with Katarina. I, uh, in the last days, I read about using psilocybin, if I pronounce it right, uh, this psychedelic drug uh, for anorectic patients. And uh, we have this new interest in psychedelics uh, to heal depression and so on. And if you understand the brain with this new perspective, then it's much more um, plausible that if you create such a new um, uh, kind of um, biochemical um, surroundings for the whole brain with the psychedelic uh, chemicals, then it's kind of a reset effect, so to speak, very primitively. And so uh, it might really be for, for, for healthcare very interesting to, to go on uh, like, like this. What, what do you think about it? Yes, I mean, there are, um, there is research done uh, by yeah, trying to uh, basically remember the name of a colleague who was actually here at uh, UCL. Yeah, Robin, Robin Carhar Harris, I remembered it, uh, who has looked into the effects of psychedelics and this sort of changing the energy landscape, if you will, of neuronal populations. That's why, for example, people, you know, report, I don't know, hallucinations, right? They report some. Uh, basically, um, some parts of their cortex, after getting the drug, they behave as if they are recalling memories that were not there, that were never formed from the, you know, the usual way, from a stimulus. Um, so I think this is a useful and actually getting more and more popular uh, manipulation. Uh, number one, to test basically experimentally all these, these effects. And second, because it points exactly to the important role of uh, the infrastructure in the brain, right, and how these uh, energy states uh, change 
for different memories, for different, this is now fictive memories, actually, this, this sort of illusions uh, that we're talking about. But again, it's very, very similar. If you look at theories of perception, like, I don't know, the Bayesian brain and how they are reconciled with theories of, of memory function, even memory itself is, uh, is thought like fictive, uh, basically fictive prediction. So fictive, let's say, when I have a memory, is like uh, seeing something in my mind. Uh, and we know that, and we know that the smallest similar kind of algorithms and mechanisms, if you are a Bayesian, for example, can be applied. Same thing here, right? Um, uh, we're talking about psychedelics, and they induce some sort of fictive, fictive memory. So the mechanism might be, again, very similar and very, you know, um, dependent on different laminar structure and different populations at different depths, similar to the model we saw, for example, earlier. So yeah, I think going back to the BCI question, right? How do we build efficient BCIs? I'm not saying we shouldn't plug electrodes in the brain. I think that's the best bet because, you know, it's electric field that, um, to my mind, guides even the biology, even the microtubules, for example. Uh, uh, but, and there are good arguments for that, right? Because that's how cognition emerges at the mesoscale out of neural activity. But still, to really make them efficient and have efficient interactions, efficient BCIs, we need to understand the biological origins of endogenous LFPs and how we can use BCIs to change them in the in case of a pathology, for example, back to the health state. That's uh, that's how I see the, you know this field going forward. Or at least I think indeed people have not put enough emphasis on that. Actually, I've talked to several BCI companies, and I don't think I haven't heard you know much progress in that direction. Thank you. And uh, in, in the metaphor of uh, this interface, it's maybe more like having a different protocol um, because, of course, you have to stimulate at a certain point, you will stimulate uh, neurons. Yeah, that's uh, what, what else could you do? Uh, of course, there are also uh, ganglion and so on, but uh, I don't um, question the whole endeavor, but uh, that um, if you find uh, what um, in, in a metaphor the, the right code to to really communicate with the brain this would be uh, the real revolution right mm -hmm. and uh, i just want to uh, as, uh, to finish here and uh, quote uh, visam who is in the audience and i was uh, not so often here in katarina's room so maybe he's often on the stage i hope so because it's he's very competent and just reading uh, from his text chat if if uh, he allows uh, he said uh, just to my point of the liquidity and then the new perspective or even copernican change how to look at um, the different layers uh, 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 granularity layers of the brain um, he says in the text chat representational drift is ubiquitous the evidence for this is building quickly the field need to come to terms with this it's a massive conceptual shift but a necessary one so just to the point of to have this new view it's already um in in the making or in the spreading so to speak uh, as, as if i understand this right here yeah and so thank you again uh, dimitris for being here for, with us
Yeah, no, thanks all, everyone for and you uh, will uh, for uh, the you know the nice uh, the interesting remarks and the and the questions. I, I'm happy to you know continue this also offline with any of you who might want or if you have something you want to discuss or send me, I'm open to uh, you know to talking more and uh, and thinking more about all these exciting questions. Yes, thank you so much, uh, Dimitris. It was really. A pleasure talking to you, and uh, it was a real interesting discussion um, on very different levels that we had. And um, yeah, we wish you all the best for your research, that you get all the funding, but you probably don't need it. But um, because I think, you know, the field of mental health and, um, you know, new needs um, a lot of more discoveries and uh, so we understand ourselves and and yeah to to, to treat also different disorders so uh, thank you so much for doing this research and we are really curious uh, the future um, with you because um, I'm sure we'll read way more like a lot of more interesting papers from you so yeah thank you and we will follow your your path. <laughs> Thank you, Katarina. Uh, yeah, let's uh, let's see where this takes us. Let's see. Thanks a lot for the kind invitation and uh, your uh, your points and questions as well. Yeah. Yeah, Katarina. Thank you, Dimitris. Thank you. Thank you. Bye, everyone. Bye, everyone. Bye -bye. And uh, if you like discussions like this, um, yeah, you're probably already a member of this house and. Um, We'll have uh, tomorrow again, um, who will talk about uh, volcanoes and his research um, into different regions um, and volcanic, volcanic activity. It will be a very different topic, but I think it will be really interesting. And um, so I hope I'll be back soon and um, enjoy the rest of your day, morning, evening, wherever you are. I'll close the room in three, two, one. Bye, everyone. Thank you.